How's it going, everyone? Uh, today, I have the honor of talking to someone I've always wanted to kind of talk with. Um, you know Bob from the legendary Into the Dragon is O'Hara, a multi-time black belt in multiple disciplines, which I hope you can talk about today. And someone that has trained with and worked with some of the greats from Chuck Norris to Gene LaBelle to the Shadow Brothers. So, Bob, this is an honor, and I am fortunate to have you here with us today. Well, pleasure to be here. Uh, sorry it took us a half an hour to get here. No, it's all good. Uh, I want to start off by saying, how have you been with everything going on in the world the last year? You know, I don't let this Mickey Mouse stuff bother me. It hasn't slowed me down. I make more money than ever. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Uh, I feel sorry for those people that are scared and running around, but it's simple. I leave the house and I wear my mask and I don't care where I go. I wear my mask and, and uh, I go to the grocery store. I go to the post office. I do everything I want to do. Luckily, I live in a mansion. And so I have people come over for Thanksgiving. I had 35 people. My eldest daughter flew in from New York. So I just don't let it slow me down. I follow the rules. I wear my mask. I wear, I wash my hands 42,000 times a day. But when people get to my home, they got their mask on. I walk them in the backyard and say, take it off if you want. Leave it on if you want. <laughs> Pretty hard to feed yourself with your mask on, and I'm not wearing one. All right? One of the yeah. interesting things is that I know a lot of your contemporaries, everyone from Betty the Jet to... Anyone who has a gym in California specifically with all the, everything that's kind of going on there with the COVID, their gyms have been affected by this. Is that something that kind of, is that disheartening for you as knowing that you kind of started off in the 60s with these gyms and stuff like that? So the question is what? I'm just kind of curious, like your thoughts on these, your contemporaries that have had these gyms in California or these other martial arts gyms and dojos that have had to shut down because of COVID and the lack of classes and people, the social distancing. Is that, is that, if you were still kind of actively in that teaching realm, would this be something that would kind of be disheartening for you? Or like you said, Hey, you're going to make it work. Well, you know what, John, it's simple. You can, my last name is wall. So it's easy for me. You can run into a 15 foot brick wall all day and all day. All you'll do is get knocked down. So eventually Wake up, go over it, go around it, drill a hole in it, dynamite it, dig under it, but get past it. So I don't let things slow me down, all right? I left home at 13. My dad was a unfortunately uh, vicious drunk. And so we stuck hay hooks in my arm and screwdrivers in my hand and hammers in my face. And so I knew I was going to kill him or he was going to kill me. So I chose to just leave. And so I didn't let that obstacle stop me. I moved in with an uncle. It took me two days to ride my $7 bike with a wired-on flashlight. 1952, there were no streetlights. Not where I lived, anyway, and not where I went. But I got there, and he used a used car lot, 546 Keys in San Jose. Gave me a job washing cars. He owned a used car, big used car lot. And, uh, and then I became a mechanic, and then I started racing cars. And then I moved up. I bought a 57 fuel-injected Corvette, four-speed, which I still have. And I set the world's record. But in the meantime, I had gone to high school, started wrestling, and got my butt kicked thoroughly for about a year and a half, and then started winning, and then went the next two years undefeated, got a scholarship to San Jose State, and got there, and it was the home of judo, 
And uh, I thought it was Jewish dough. I didn't know what Jew was until I got a few <laughs> flying lessons. And I thought the guy was going to kill my ass. And uh, so anyway, I uh, began with a black belt in judo. And Risei Kano, Jigoro Sun, signed my certificate. I had watched the great Gene LaBelle twice win the judo nationals. And so I uh, decided to move to L.A. And when I went to high school, I was five feet tall and 93 pounds. So I started lifting weights, eating a lot of protein. And, uh, and eventually I became a 130-pounder, which is I won two years in a row at, at uh, my high school in San Jose. And that's how I got the scholarship. So I got to judo, then I started gaining weight, lifting more protein, and I saw that Gene LaBelle weighed 165 pounds when he won the judo nationals. So I decided, okay, I'm, I've gone from 93 pounds to 130. I'm going to go to 165 and then move to L.A. So less than a year later, uh, I was 165 pounds. Moved to L.A., walk into Gene LaBelle's dojo and at Cal Western, and he weighed 265. And he was really heavyweight champ. <laughs> right. And, and he says, kid, I got two gears, kind of kill, the rest don't matter. And so I said, okay, I'm never going to get to 265. Now I'm six feet, 190. But at any rate, trained with him, became his fifth black belt. And uh, many, many years ago, 59. And then he said, go train and everything. So then I did American boxing, got my butt kicked. Pretty soon got good enough to stop myself from getting butt kicked. And I studied Thai boxing. And that was 1960. Got my butt kicked. Then pretty soon stopped getting my butt kicked. And then I studied uh, jujitsu. Of course, I went, Chuck Norris and I went to Brazil and uh, we trained just a couple of days with the Gracies and then met the Machados and they came over. And so uh, they were working out of a garage. I own a lot of shopping centers and office buildings. So I, uh, I gave them free rent in one of my shopping centers in Encino. So all five of the Machados trained there. Wow. They had no money. So Chuck Norris and I bought the carpet. And we got the furniture. I gave him a computer. I gave him the system that I used. Chuck and I used to build 182 schools, which I created the manual. And, uh, and then I brought him about 100 students. And they succeeded. And a couple years later, moved them to Tarzana, where they are today. So I trained with them many, many, many years. And, uh, and then uh, I studied with Joe Lewis and became his first black belt, Sean Rue. And uh, Joe and I were great. Great partners. Um, we trained together about two and a half, three years, I guess. I became his first black belt. I was already a black belt, but I became his black belt, his first. And uh, But he, you know, I I'd enroll 20 students and he'd break 20 noses. And so then <laughs> I'd say, Joe, they don't come here to get their nose broken. And you beat the hell out of me every day. So why don't we just simply not hurt these people? They come to keep from getting their noses broken. And I love Joe. He was very tough. And beat the hell out of me daily for two and a half years. And, but, you know, one day he broke my ribs. So the next day I came back and broke his nose. And he said, what's that about? And I said, listen, anybody that hurts me, I'm going to hurt them back. You're tough. You're bigger. But I will beat on you until I get you. And so he got the message and he stopped then hurting me and started more training me. And then, but, it, you know, the nose breaking kept up. So I finally said, I'm going to give you the whole school. I'd already given half of the school. Now, I already made a lot of money by then. I was already a multimillionaire then, okay? So I gave him the school. He said, oh, no, I don't want it without you. And so then I started calling around to get somebody to buy the school. Got to Chuck Norris, who was a good friend, and he said, oh, I don't care about the school. I, I want you as a partner. 
And so we became partners. He had a school in Redondo Beach, didn't make a lot of money, but mine made 50000 net. So I changed the system. Now, I went and stayed at his school for a week, and uh, he didn't have a bookkeeping system. I'd go to, I'd say, John, did you, you've been here for 10 months. Um, uh, have you paid? Oh, yeah. Well, do you have a receipt? No. Uh, do you have a canceled check? No. Then you didn't pay. And so let's assume <laughs> you were paying $100 a month. Well, then you owe me $1,000 I want it tomorrow. Oh, I'm not going to do that. Well, then I'm going to beat the shit out of you. And I went to a lot of people's houses and adjusted attitudes, and they decided to pay. It's amazing. Unbelievable. But I kicked in some doors and screens and a few other things, and, and all of a sudden we started making a lot of money. And then I used the cash flow to open my third school, fourth school, fifth school, each time with cash flow from the previous schools. We wound up with the largest chain in the history of America. Okay. Now, and- when you start this, you it, now I you worked in a lot of obviously real estate, but your business sense seems at the time so far ahead of the game than your contemporaries. Is that obviously what helped set you apart? Oh, absolutely. Because first of all, I manualized it. Nobody else did it. So in 1964, I had a manual, how to answer the phone, you know, objections, you know, how to close. Uh, I didn't believe in selling black belt, brown belt courses. I would tell people, now you can sign up for three months. I won't take you less than three months. You've got to have three months to find out if you're going to stick to it. And then I would move them to a blue belt program. Then I'd move them to a green belt program. And when you're a green belt, I'd move you to a, with Chuck Norris, a red belt program because he was Korean style from Korea. And Tang Sado. And of course, I'm a Sean Rue black belt. I'm a Gene LeBeau black belt. I'm a judo black belt. And, and I'd studied Thai boxing. So nobody, nobody that I knew low kicked. I can low kick you out of your shoes. And I do a vicious kick called a scissors kick. I'll drop a bomb on your thigh and then come up underneath your kneecap and you fold forward and I hit you with a left. And that's how I uh, adjusted Hoist Gracie's attitude, as a matter of fact, in 86. But uh, <laughs> my point was, you know, and I'm a street fighter. I've probably been in 10 times more street fights than anybody else you know. I was pretty hostile about all the hay hooking and stuff that had gone on with my dad. So I was determined that nobody, capitalized underlay, was ever going to beat me up again. And I trained with everybody. Okay? And so by training with the best, I trained with Pat Burleson. I trained with Jim Harrison. Uh, obviously, Bruce Lee for 10 and a half years, whom I loved. But I brought him into my circle. I introduced him, Gene LaBelle and Chuck Norris and everybody else. And my deal was to train with everybody and then go field test it. And then early in the uh, early to mid 60s, there were a lot of wise guys who walk into karate school and, hey, you know, I'm an airborne ranger. I only know how to kill. Well, kill me. Jump to it. Lock the door. And I beat the crap out of them. And so I sent a lot of people out of there with broken things. And uh, so I field tested, field tested, field tested. Now, Chuck Norris never been in a street fight. Joe Lewis was never in a street fight. Bill Wallace was never in a street fight. So a lot of these guys are ring fighters, but I do both. I took first or second in all seven majors, the international by Ed Parker. I took first and second. I bowed to Chuck Norris and Joe Lewis. I was never going to fight my instructor because it was then so-called point karate. And then I won world championships in Seattle, Steve Armstrong. And then I went to the nationals, June Rhee, and I, I won the heavyweight divisions, uh, 68 and 69. Joe Lewis was a defending super he, uh, they call them grand champions. Those right. Days. So I wasn't going to fight my instructor. So I took first and then I bowed out to him. That's 68, 69. And then I went, I was invited to the tournament champions, Pat Burleson, Fort Worth, Texas. And I took first one year and second one year. And then I went to the all American and I took first two years. And, uh, 
Uh, and then I went to G- Allen Steen's United States Championship, and I took first and second there. My second was bowing out to Chuck Norris. I was in 68. So I did the tournament circuit, but I didn't care. You know, first, second, <laughs> third, I didn't care. Did I fight well? That's all I cared. Right. And so I ruptured people's screens and broke ribs and things. And I, I always laugh at the people that say, oh, it's only point karate. <laughs> well, let me tell you, from 64 to 69, it was kill you or get killed. You couldn't hit wow. the face, but you broke ribs, ruptured spleens. And then finally, um, I'm looking at the plaque now. If I could show you a little plaque of it, but it's a World Professional Championships. And Joe Lewis won super heavyweight. I won heavyweight. Mike Stone won light heavyweight. Chuck Norris middleweight and Skipper Mullins lightweight. And we changed the rules. In fact, MMA stole it from us. They changed it a little bit, but they basically stole it. So our deal was it was 30-point must. So if Bob Wallace fighting John, <clears throat> then uh, you get 10-point must for most variety of techniques. So you're just not throwing a right hand, right hand, right hand, right hand. Okay? And then you've got 10 points for most points scored. And then you've got 10 points for best defense. And it was no longer up until then, it was one, two, or three points, depending on what tournament you fought in. Right. And who, who got the first two or three won. Okay? And, uh, and of course, you got every style in the world. Unlike Taekwondo, where you, you, could, you, only, you only go to the Olympics if you're a Taekwondo black belt. Well, who can't beat them up? You know, uh, frankly, they're pretty predictable. Never saw a great Taekwondo person, somebody who won an Olympic, came into the open tournaments and won. Never happened. It was always Chuck Norris, Joe Lewis, Mike Stone, Skipper Mullins, etc. Okay? Why? Because we did it all. We weren't restricted. And they're predictable. I know they're going to kick, any kick, any kick. When the Japanese come, I know they're going to come like a kamikaze. Straight front kick, try to sweep, reverse punch. I say, John, I think I'll shoot you tomorrow at noon. I'll be in a pink Cadillac. I'll have a snub nose 22. All right? I'll be there at noon. How smart do you have to be to go to the local gun store, knowing nothing about guns, and you say, well, how far does a snub nose 22 shoot? Well, if you're lucky, 60 feet. Okay, what do you have that starts shooting at 150 feet? And you get your scope rifle. I was a, I was a sniper in the Army, so I know about guns. I was a farmer, and I had to shoot to eat. I had three bullets. I never got more than three bullets, so I couldn't miss. Well, that stood me well when I got in the Army, and I went to, and I became a sniper. And uh, so then I, I uh, arranged a lot of meetings with a lot of bad people for the Lord. You know, it wasn't my job. They didn't even have a word then called recycle. I got out in July of 62. So, you know, I, I'm not 12 years old. And, uh, but anyway, so I arranged for people to meet with the Lord. Therefore, my attitude about fighting is totally different than a guy who's doing point fighting. Right. Okay. So, and then I was putting it on the street, making sure it worked. You with me? And so I had the edge over virtually everybody because I trained in everything. Basically, the best thing ever happened to me was making a black belt in judo, moving to L.A., and then becoming Gene Liddell's fifth black belt. And he was a serious deal. To this day, I defy anybody. I'll offer anybody whatever money they want to put up, 50 grand, 100 grand, five, come and beat Gene Liddell. He's 87. Come and beat him up. Haven't seen anybody do it. I rolled with him for well over 50 years, and I never came close to beating him. <laughs> right. I was happy to get out with my life. <laughs> and I took Joe Lewis, Chuck Norris, and Jim... Harrison and Pat Burrell, everybody. If they came to train with me, I took them there. So it, incredible. He's, he's a serious guy. You know, you know, he pinned a bear. 
Yeah, so I, I was going to follow up with that. I read that story, and then I also was very curious about – you had this concept of the Dirty Dozen. It was like based on, I think, Seagal, Steve Seagal, where he didn't appreciate certain martial arts. And so when I read that stuff, I'm kind of like, if that would happen today, it would be media hogwash. No one's going to fight. But back in your like your era in the 60s, 70s, like I actually – I could picture that happening and like you guys are ready to throw down. And is that just a product of you guys really appreciating the time and energy and work you've actually done? It would someone on the outside of that kind of, kind of taking a thinking you guys aren't serious. So how do you, that dynamic there, that whole dirty doesn't thing was very mind blowing. Well, Steven Seagal, first of all, he's a punk. And uh, the last time I saw him in now, I need, I stood on his jam, my forehead in his face and bent him over like a banana. He asked me if I wanted to come to school fight. I said, no, right here, right now in front of 200 people, including Chuck Norris, Howard Jackson, and 198 other people, my wife. I stood on his foot and jammed my forehead in his face. I was just going to headbutt him out of his shoes, double A, take him down, kick his face in. I could already see the blood on the floor. But he cried like a little banana. I don't want to fight you. Boo-hoo-hoo. And then he ran away. Okay, and that was in front of 200 people, including Chuck Norris and Howard Jackson and my wife and his new wife, etc. Okay, so I don't take BS from punks. He's a punk. And the key word, as you well know, are you a martial artist? I am not actively. I've, one of the reasons why I reached out to yourself and various other martial artists is to kind of learn and appreciate and hear about the history and lineage. And it's something I'm definitely interested in getting into. Well... The key word with respect from the time I started, now I've been doing 66 years, okay? I mean, I made my first it's a black long belt time. in 1957. I made my black belt in judo after going two years undefeated in wrestling. So because I was always field testing, I didn't care if you're a hell's angel or, or any other badass, you know, let's dance. Let's see what you got. Don't, you're going to talk me to death? Show me. <laughs> and so, you know, I was pretty hostile in those days. And now I've become a nicer guy. I, last 30 years, I only slap, sweep, and choke. But I got some freaky long arms. You've got to be 6'6 to have arms like I do, and I'm a choke master. I teach a seven-step choke to police departments particularly, which is kind of amusing to me about these idiots banning chokes because a, a punk-ass criminal cop kills a criminal. you know. And I go, what did you do it with? Oh, it looked like a knee in the neck to me. So did they ban the knee in the neck? Oh, no. They banned the chokehold. I go, are you serious? Are you punks? Are you idiots? Are you blind? I mean, you're banning chokehold when he got killed with a knee in the neck? I've choked out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Last 30 years, particularly, I just slapped something and choked. And they're on the floor. <laughs> and have you ever been choked out? Most I have. have uh, yeah, just to... But uh, if you're choked out, it's like anesthesia. You don't know it until they wake you up. So I'm the guy reaching down saying, are you okay? How'd you get down there? They don't know. So hundreds and hundreds of people I've choked and Gene's probably done a few thousand. Nobody ever died because you do the choke properly. properly. But a lot of people don't know how to do a proper choke, which is why I made the seven step choke and I sent it out free to all police agencies. But in the 60s, I started going to, I went to Arizona, then Arkansas and a, a lot of other states. And I taught police officers because they were banning the chokehold back in the 60s. Because all they taught was a three-step choke. One, two, three, and it was armbar. And so it broke the trachea. If you don't know how to open up the airway, the person dies. So, But I do one, two, three, lock. 
So you holler in my hand, wrist yep. lock back on the. So I lock finger four in the ear. If I take that finger and it comes out the other side, you're going to give me whatever I want. Believe you me, <laughs> but it's lock lock. One, two, three, four. Hips turn, not your arms, your hips. It's your body, your arm. A lot of dummies are doing that. No, no, no. It's the hips. Okay. One, two, three, lock, four, lock, five. And then it's relax. Use no strength, pure technique. And you come in. And then you come to six. And then you come to seven. Pecs forward, shoulders back. It's all the dense muscles. It's night, night. When you go to six, not most people go night, night. But sometimes I get wise guys and they're going to pretend. So, and I just stay on six. And then I wait two, three, four, 10, 20 seconds. And then I go to seven. And they're gone. <laughs> it's goodbye. Nobody gets hurt. Nobody dies. It's a ridiculous crime to take properly done choke holes away from police officers. They don't want to kill somebody. But if you grab their weapon and you refuse to be arrested, and then you take a weapon, whether it's a taser or a gun, and you start running away, you might get shot. How about not? I've been arrested four times in my life. You know what I do? Put your hands up. My hands go up. Get on the curb. I get on the curb. I follow exactly what they say. Right. If I don't like what they do, I'll sue them. I've gone to court twice, and I won. Okay. I didn't like what the police officer did. So 98% police officers are fabulous. But 2%, it's like anything. Lawyers, doctors, martial arts teachers, chefs. There's always 2% that are bad. that shouldn't be in the business. But don't refuse to be arrested. If you're arrested, that cop has a gun, a badge, and he has friends that have badges and guns. And they will shoot you. So, you know, to me, it's just allow yourself to be arrested. Follow, do exactly what the police officer says. If you don't like it, sue the city. Most of them will pay off anyway. If, if the cop was wrong, and the poor police officers, they don't get backed up. Basically not by superiors, not by the public, certainly not by the press, which is outrageous. We need the police. So for all those idiots that want to defund the police, they're idiots. What you need to do is weed out the bad cops. And that's very easy with good training. And you said consistent training right. and moral training. And, you know, my mom, I had the greatest mother in the world. She was 99. When I was seven, wow. she sat me down and she said, Bobby, she said, I want you to hate everybody. And I went, huh. Mommy, I don't, I don't want to hate everybody because prejudice is taught. No kid ever born in the history of earth came out of the womb saying, I hate black people, brown people, yellow people, purple people, yellow, white, green. No. So right. I said, Mommy, I don't want to hate everybody. She said, nope. You have to hate everybody that chose their parents. I went, Mom, that's not possible. That's right, son. N nobody in the history of earth, including Jesus, who was a Jew before he created Christianity, he didn't choose his parents. So never judge anybody by their color. It doesn't matter if they're brown or black or yellow or red or white or purple or green. Don't judge them by that. And don't even judge most people by what they say, because we all, I'm included, say stupid things sometimes. Now, I've cut it down a lot, you know, but the fact, judge them only by what they do. Right. Which is why I'm a Trump lover, because we had the best economy. We had the highest un employment rate for browns and blacks and the lowest unemployment rate. I don't care what he says. 
I don't care. Everybody, every politician I've ever met, except possibly Ronald Reagan, who I taught, uh, President Ford, President Reagan, and President Bush Sr. I taught all three of them. Really? I taught Elvis, awesome. Jack Palance, I taught Elvis Jack Palance, Brian Keith, Elgie El- Summers, Steve McQueen, Freddie Prince. I taught them all. I'm the highest paid instructor in the history of Earth. Okay? I was getting 250 a class back in the 60s and 70s. No hour. If you couldn't, I'd push you. And if you, were, you couldn't make the workout, you were done in 30 minutes. You're laying on the ground, blue, you know, sweating. Good. Go home. Get in shape. Start running. Skip some rope. But if you're going with it, I might teach you an hour and a half or two hours. It's two fifty a lesson. Again, I taught Elvis, Jack Palance, Brian Keith, Paul Newman, Eric Summit, C. McQueen, Freddie Prince, on and on and on and on and on. And I worked with Bruce Lee for ten and a half years. Both of us teaching each other, but I taught him. You don't see kung fu guys throwing crescent kicks, side kicks, round kicks, spinning back kicks, all of which he beat the crap out of me with my tools in into the dragon. Okay, and I got pictures of me teaching him. I got film of me training him. Okay, but. We were friends, just like Chuck Norris. He gave back as much as he received, meaning he taught Chuck Norris and I because film fighting is 100% opposite of street fighting, of real fighting, of kickboxing. Because in real fighting, somebody nails you, you don't go, oh, right. I'm never going to let you know if you ever hurt me, okay? <laughs> but in film fighting, Bruce taught us the string line. So here comes the punch. Okay, and if it goes, it's not going to sell. Okay, if it comes this way and you go that way, it's not going to sell. So the string line that Bruce Lee taught, he was brilliant. He was the greatest film fighter in the history of Earth. Proof of that is Enter the Dragon, budget eight fifty, done well over a billion dollars. Not a bad return, huh? No, I'm still good. making money. Pretty I'm still good. getting residuals forty eight years later. Okay, but he taught us the string line. So here comes the punch. Now. Your shoulders got to relax. Your neck's got to relax. And here comes the punch. And now you've sold it. Now, that was but done this, so well in your fight scene with him in Edge of the Dragon that I, part of it was like, man, it looks like they were actually hitting each other. Well, the fact is, Bruce and I only believe in realism. He kicked the shit out of me. <laughs> All right? Everything he threw, he was hitting me. Makes it pretty easy to react well when you're actually getting hit. Right. So, the fact is, but we agreed to that. Years ago, I perfected how to take punches and kicks. Okay. And a lot of people, they, it's nothing they study. 99% of the people don't ever train in how to take a punch or a kick. Me, with all my black belts, I have 40, 50, 60 in a class. I'd march in front of you and I'd say, John, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. If you hit me in the nose or the, or the teeth or the nose, they're going to break and then I'm going to hit you back. And trust me, you're going to be in an ambulance and you won't like it. You won't make that mistake again. But other than that, you can hit me in the head, you can kick me in the groin, you can left hook me in the liver, you can punch me in straight in the chest, whatever you want. And then when I, I so I'd, I'd go to every class and I'd say, all right, what's your deadliest technique? A front kick, all right? Stand back and front kick me. Kick me in the groin. Hit me in the head. Why? Because when you take a punch, first of all, you have to lift weights. And we were, Chuck and I were smart enough to go to Lou Ferrigno and Arnold Schwarzenegger yep. in the prime. We studied with the masters. We learned, okay? And when you go to, say, bench press, you exhale, okay? And you inhale coming back. So we use that in fighting. I said, ah, and we use it in singing. I stole it from singing. So you've got five diaphragms, okay? And so underwater divers, free divers like me, 
we get the air in the lower lobes. So you can put your hand, I don't anybody, they can put their hand on the back by my lowest lobe and I'll fill it separately. Now I filled it. Then I'll come up in this one, the right one. I fill that. And then you bring the air up. So when you get hit, it's the opposite of what people think. Okay, I'm ready, hit me. No, just the opposite. Relax. And when you get hit, air escapes. So I do demos where I take size 16 cowboy boots and I'll take the biggest guy in the class, hopefully 300 pounds or 400, like see months ago, and I'll have him put the cowboy boots on and leap in the air and stomp me on concrete or hardwood floor to show him it's a real technique. So I've had every tough guy in the world from Ernie Shavers to Muhammad Ali up, down, sideways, punch me as hard as they can. Now, the brothers, they don't want to kill the little white boy because I'm a dwarf to them at six feet, 190 pounds. But so I usually have to hit them, have them hit me four or five times. They build up their courage. And then some of them still, uh, I'm not going to kill the little white boy and blow him in front of this thousand audience here. And so I'll say, listen, my daughter hits harder than that. Can't you do better than my Then all of a sudden they say, F the little white boy. <laughs> He's got to die. And now they let go. But I perfected how to take punches and kicks. So when you get hit in the head, it's very simple. It's the opposite of what people think. Relax your neck and go with it and drive your chin into your shoulder. That's a cushion. Well, that takes away 90% of the punch. It's the same thing wherever they hit you. If you relax, and of course, it helps if you do some sit-ups and stay in shape. Right. I'm 81, baby. I'm like a rock. So You look great for you. I mean, you look ugly at 81. Well, I hope so. Thank you. But the point is, it's all techniques you got to study. So I used to teach my students. First thing I do is warm them up. Then I have them lay like sardines. Men, boys, everybody. This lay is jammed up parallel to each other. And then I'd say, now I want you to close your eyes. And I'm going to walk gently over you. And I want you to just exhale. I want your eyes closed. So I'd have rows and rows and rows of students. And I'd walk on them. And they'd go, with their eyes closed, they'd go, and I do that for three weeks, just walking on it. And then we get on with the class. And then in the start of the fourth week, I'd say, okay, line up like sardines. We used to just call it sardines. And they lay out in a row. So no space between them, jammed up. And now I'd hop lightly, flat foot. And I do that for three weeks. Then I'd say, okay, today, this is now, we've had four weeks twice. This is the ninth week. So now I'm going to hop on you with the ball of my foot. And I'm just going to hop gently. What if I'm doing? I'm creating their confidence. And, I'm, and a lot of them are training three, four, five days a week. I'm getting them to relax. And I'm getting to be able to take a punch in the dark. I don't care who hits me in the dark. You better have a bat or a pipe. My, my, my vision is 2010. My hearing is A plus excellent. I don't see any hearing aids in my hair. So bottom line is when I got through with the three-month course, everybody could take a better punch. Now, a lot of them didn't want, didn't want to go beyond that, but the last three weeks, I would jump on them hard, still flat-footed. I wouldn't jump on them with a the heel, but I'd jump on them flat-footed. <laughs> so the confidence came up. They started to realize they can take it. Their fear evaporated. And so I sent a lot of bad mothers. Chuck Norris and I created the best black belts ever. Our black belt teams were never defeated. And at that point, last time we fought was... Uh, 1971, when he defended our world title, which we won 69, 70, 72, 71. And it was three three-minute rounds in 1969, and you could kill the body, you could kill the leg, just no safety equipment, you couldn't punch the head, okay? But 
It was three three-minute rounds. You got 30 points, as I explained to you earlier. So the bottom line is, we were the real deal. Now, I fought a guy named Steve, uh, what's his name? Watson. Uh, and he was a Texas heavyweight champ. And uh, I broke his ribs. Sure. I messed him up real good. Okay? And I've got the film. Unlike a lot of people, you know, like Jean-Claude Vidal, why am I a world champion? Oh, really? What year? 74. No, you weren't. <laughs> what weight were you? Oh, I was middleweight. No, Bill Wallace was world champion in 74. I know them all. I wrote the first Who's Who in the Martial Arts in 1975. I know all the fighters. And I've been all over the world, hundreds of countries. And so I fought. I played with people in, in Amsterdam. I played with them in France and Germany and every place else. When I got married in 1968, I'm still married 62 years to my fabulous wife, Lillian. But That's we awesome. went on a seven-week honeymoon, a week in San Francisco, and then six weeks in Europe. And 1968, I just got on the phone. And in those days, in England, there was only three karate schools in the Yellow Pages, and it was Shotokan. I called them up. Each one of them ran over and bought me breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I wound up teaching in a, a church called Stratford Audubon. It was Shakespeare's church. Wow. And there was 200 people in there. And, of course, we were stupid in those days, barefoot. Freezing was in December, you know, but anyway, I jammed them in there and I taught them and blew them away. Well, they only, in, in England then, they only had Shotokan karate. Well, I studied with Oshima. I studied later with Funakoshi. I, tra I trained with Funakoshi with, uh, 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 who was the guy that took over after him? Uh, it'll come to me in a minute. But anyway, I studied with everybody. I studied with Seol Choi. I studied with Bang Su Han. I studied with Fumio Demura. I trained with everybody. I went everywhere, every time. And and so uh, uh, you learn. I stole the front kick from the Japanese. And we used to practice kicking over a chair. And you'd kick over and back. If you knocked the chair down, you were dropping your leg. You don't do that. And then you, like the ties, you push the last three inches. That's what breaks their ribs. So I laid a lot of people down with front kicks. And I, and I did spinning leg sweeps, which I always like to use with boxers, like Muhammad Ali. I started boxing him when he was Cassius Clay. And last time I sparred him was 65, when he'd become Muhammad Ali. And it was before he fought a big clat, Keevan Williams. And that's all I do with spinning leg sweeps. I just sweep him, then you kick him in the head. Just tap him. <laughs> so the bottom line is I got all the tools as I stole from everybody by training with everybody, by getting my ass kicked by everybody. As I said, got my ass kicked in wrestling. But then the last two years, went undefeated. Got my ass kicked in judo. Then the last year and a half, didn't get my ass kicked. And then I went to Gina Bell. Got my ass kicked for over 50 years. <laughs> Never came close to beating that monster. But you got to learn something unless you're stupid. As he does say, hey, get, why do you want to break a finger when you can break a finger and a wrist? Why do you want to break a finger and a wrist when you can break a finger, wrist, and an elbow? Why break a finger, wrist, and an elbow when you can break a finger, wrist, and an elbow with a shoulder? You don't want to put so much pain on them. They wish they were a submarine and they go dive, dive, dive. They only get away from the pain. He's brutal. Opposite of the Machados and the Gracies. They're smooth with all their techniques. They trained with all of them. But he stick elbows in you. He'd stick his chin in you. He'd stick his elbow in you. He'd stick his knee in you. He'd jam you in the spine. I mean, he's brutal. That's why you, he's only got a few black belts. Because you've got to be a masochist or stupid. You mentioned... You mentioned that, and you've kind of talked about some other martial arts that everyone knows, different movies, about ego and stuff, but if we could circle back to Enter the Dragon, was there ever any ego during the film of that movie since there were so many, from Jim Kelly to John Sexton, who just passed away, to Sammo to Jackie Chan, like, was there any ego on the set of that movie? 
Say again, could I do was, what? Was there any ego while filming Edge of the Dragon? Because you had so no, many No, because number different- one, I loved Bruce. You know, okay. He was like my yellow brother. He was Eurasian, you know, he's part German. But he was just a great guy. And as I said, the greatest film fighter of all time. And the proof is are his movies, but certainly Into the Dragon. And uh, so I hired John Saxon. I hired Jim Kelly. I hired everybody. Peter Bennett, the Australian that yeah. got set free in the boat. I hired everybody, all the martial artists in that movie, I hired. So I got them together when I first got there in March, uh, rather in January of 1973. And I said, guys, if anybody causes any problems or if you let your ego get away with you, then I'm going to hurt you. <laughs> and the bad news is I will enjoy it. I will hurt you all. I hired Jim Kelly. That was his only second movie. He had a little bit part in a small movie. And he was a good guy. Um, but he and John Saxon were both pretty stiff. I had to take him to the gym under Bruce's orders because in film fighting, you've got to be flexible. Right. Uh, and Chuck and Bruce and I are always stretching, 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 stretching on the set in between takes. And so we both can do the splits. We both can kick Will Chamberlain in the head. I choked out Will Chamberlain one time, by the way. But the bottom line is today I'm ready to go. You know, right. Steven Seagal wants a rematch or somebody else. Let's go. I'm ready now. I don't have to train. I'm ready today. Okay. But anyway, so I explained to him, I said, guys, I love you. I hired you. Bruce approved you. But your performance is on me. Because right. I hired all the martial arts. Bruce has got to do his thing. But he needs you to do your thing that works best. So here's our objective. We are all here, including me. Okay. And we all got 500 a week. Okay. That budget was only 850. And Lalo Schiffen got 150 and Bruce got 300 grand. How much does that be from 850? 400 grand for the entire movie. Right. Okay? So that's pretty amazing to come right. up with a movie that fabulous. But I just explained it to everybody. We are here to make Bruce Lee look good. I'm a world professional champion. Okay. I'm undefeated world professional champion. In three years in a row, Joe Lewis, Bob Wall, Chuck Norris, Mike Stone, Skipper Mullen. Now two of those guys are gone, unfortunately. Joe Lewis and Skipper, yep. too bad. They were, they were great fighters. But I explained to everybody, everybody here is going to understand we're here to make Bruce Lee look good. And if we get any problems with anybody, then I'm going to dance with you. And trust me, you won't like my style. Okay? <laughs> and so, but also on top of that, Bruce was egoless. Bruce was so friendly. Bruce was funny. He was kind. He'd already had prejudice against him as a kid, as a Eurasian, part German, part Chinese. And then, of course, Freddie Weintraub and he and I, we, we worked a year and a half to create the Kung Fu series and uh, went to Warner Brothers. And they, the guys there said, uh, oh, no, he's too Chinese. I go, how do, you get to be too, how do you get to be too Irish? How do you get to be too black? How do you get to be too brown? How do you get to be too yellow? I don't get it. But anyway, that's why they turned him down. They said, well, no Asian man has ever been an international leading man. After Into the Dragon, Bruce Lee was. He was a world-famous leading man. And it's the highest-grossing martial arts movie in history. And if somebody can do a better job, how, why, how come they haven't done it? So, answer your question in long sort. We were all there to make Bruce look good. Now, I was making 12 to 15 grand a week. I took that job for 500 a week. Okay? Previous to that, I did... Uh, I did... Uh, uh, right... What was it? His previous film was uh, uh, one we did in, uh, oh, uh, Way of the Dragon. Okay. And I was two weeks in Italy and then six 
eight. Yeah, I was I was I was eight weeks in in in, uh, in uh, Hong Kong. But the fact is, I got seventy five a week because that's all Bruce could afford. The budget for the whole movie is only two fifty. Okay, so I did that for friendship. I did that because I loved Bruce. Each time I got my ass kicked thoroughly with our agreement. Bruce was so fabulous for every scene. We were so close. He would say, well, I'm going to break something. Ah, you little Chinaman, you can't break anything. So he was trying. That's why I can show you my favorite picture of Bruce and I hugging each other. Because that's, it's not the one I sell the most of. I sell with one of just he and I staring at the camera in black and white. I sell a hell of a lot. I held thousands of dollars a month of autograph photographs all over the world. But we loved each other. But the characters hated each other. So people always say, I hated you for the first several years. When they, they hated me, you know, and I'd say, well, that's why they call it acting, because I loved Bruce. He was a fabulous man. He was an amazing martial artist. He was fun. He was funny. He was smart. But the point is, we had no issues because everybody knew the buck was going to stop with me and you weren't going to like it. Yep. You won't like my style of dancing. And you'll get fired after, after <laughs> right. you get out of the hospital. Okay. So, you know, it was a fabulous set. Jim Kelly, John Saxon, Anna Capri, uh, Samo Hung, uh, Bolo, who's a friend of mine. I mean, I went to his daughter's wedding. He's a good man. And, uh, in fact, we're coming out with a, a whole Enter the Dragon magazine. who will be done in about a month. That's awesome. And we're taking all the people who are still alive. We're going to use Lalo Schifrin's original music with a couple of modern m modifications, with his permission, of course. And... So we've got Bolo, we've got Samo Hung, uh, we've got, um, uh, we've got... Uh, Jackie Chan be involved? Say what? Jackie Chan? Jackie Chan, uh, most likely no, because he, he makes so much money now for a film. But I hired him for Enter the Dragon. That was his Which is crazy, because he played a bunch of henchmen in that, right? Which I We killed him four times, but we only showed his face once. I got a still, Bruce was pulling his hair back. But that's Jackie. I know Jackie's a good guy. Uh, a few years ago, they had everybody from Into the Dragon at the Academy, and and we all got up, and that was that was Shannon Lee and Freddie Weintraub and Paul Heller and uh, uh, Lalo Schifrin. Uh, 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 we had the, uh, uh, the cinematographer Phil Hubs. We had everybody, and we were on the stage, and we had an interviewer, and then questions we asked from the audience. Well, only a thousand people. But Jackie flew over for it. That's Very cool. kind of him. That's cool. And so he remembered that I hired him. And he remembered what Bruce Lee, that film, did for him. I gave right. him a whole career. And he took it a different direction. He was never the fighter that Bruce was. So he made it comedy. And he's a hell of an athlete. And for years, I don't know, I hope he still doesn't do it, but he hurt himself a lot. Taking these really risky jumps, Crazy. flips, flops, stops. But he went in a comedic route, you know. And tongue-in-cheek kind of comedy. Brilliant. He's a brilliant guy, a brilliant actor. He's, he's made a fortune. But, you know, I, I doubt if we'll get him. But we might. We, we might even try to ask him. You know, he's a good enough friend that he might. Right. But, uh, but I'm taking everybody else. And I just found out that uh, the, the female lead that I allegedly raped and killed, um, she's supposedly limiting, Angela Mao Ying, supposedly got a restaurant somewhere in New York. So wow. I've, got a, I've got a friend that knows her. So I'm going to get her in. So my objective is to have everybody that was in the original, you know, in this magazine talking about their relationship with Bruce and how did they meet him and how did the movie go? There wasn't ever one hard word 
But Bruce was so nervous because he knew this was his home run and he'd never had a budget over 250. Now he's got 850, right? Right. And uh, so he was getting paid more <laughs> all the films he fought budget. So <laughs> he was very nervous. The first two weeks, he was kind of arguing with Freddie Weintraub and it was all stuff that they were close buddies. There would have been no Bruce Lee as they know him today without Freddie Weintraub, who passed away a couple of years ago, but he was a fabulous man. Legend. He was an honest producer. In fact, I loved him so much, I hooked him up with Steve McQueen, who was my student, and Freddie Weintraub produced his last two movies. Wow. And so, and they got along famously. Steve McQueen was famous for being hard to get along with. He was nothing, nothing but kind with me and everybody around him. He was humble. He was the highest paid actor in the world, at that time getting about 15 million. Okay, but no issues with he and Freddie because Freddie didn't lie. And Freddie told him, hey, I'm here to produce the film and I'm here to make you look good and I'll never lie to you. And they just loved each other. And I loved Freddie. Freddie was phenomenal, just absolutely phenomenal. But anyway, so that's part of the reason the magic was there. So we finally talked, Bruce, after two weeks. The first scene we did in the movie, if you remember, there's a room he's in that I later come in and. Tell him he's got to wear the uniform to the morning ritual. But he was just sitting there with a book, no dialogue. We shot that. And the next scene was me opening the door as O'Hara, evil Scarface. You must wear the uniform to the morning ritual. Outside. <laughs> he comes around with a sidekick. Well, then after that, and after that, it was just bam, 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 bam. Okay. And, but he knew this was his home run. He didn't want to blow it. But it was fabulous. I mean, Anybody working on that set knew, you know, particularly Jim Kelly and, and John Saxon and Peter Bennett, uh, Bolo. We were all close on the set, and they all knew we had magic in a bottle. We came away. When I came home, I said, the scene is going to just smash records. Yep. Well, it did. It did. But it's because we all loved Bruce. Bruce was not an egotist. And, you know, probably the most martial artists, their biggest weakness is their ego. Right. Seagal is a perfect example. And when you get that nasty ego, there's a saying that at the feast of egos, everyone goes home hungry. So, you know, real people understand martial arts is respect. You bow to get on the mat. You bow to your opponent before and after sparring. It's respect. So when somebody like clown fat boy Seagull comes along <laughs> and starts disrespecting people like Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee, that's what I called him in his school and offered him to dance, and he didn't want to dance, you know. But uh, uh, at any rate, he's an egotist. He's a flake. Can't fight a lick, you know. Um, his whole system is he's six four, with ponytail, and if he breaks seventeen arms, the movie grosses seventeen million. And if he breaks twenty one arms, he couldn't break my grandmother's arm. He's a flake. He's living in Russia now. Has to. Can't come back to America. Too many sex charges. He's not a nice person. I feel sorry for him because the guy was gifted 6'4". You know, when I was dancing with him, he was 300 pounds. Now I hear he's 450, but he never gave anybody any respect. Nobody was as good as him. But when it came time to dance, he didn't want to dance. He's a punk. Okay? So I don't like people like him. I don't like I wise guys. I think one of the coolest things just talking to you now is that you're – you value your friendship. It's cool to see people who are real friends and will do anything for their friends and got their friends back. It's like your relationship with Chuck and Gene and all these. It's it's really cool that friendship is something means something to you. That's just awesome hearing these stories. 
Oh, you're absolutely correct. And Chuck Norris is another fabulous man. You know, he's honest. He's always there. He's been a great friend. I would do anything for him anytime, anyplace. Uh, he was a great fighter. He was the best middleweight champion seven years undefeated. Crazy. And Seagal wants to disrespect him. They ask him, one interviewer, well, what'd you think of Chuck Norris? Oh, him. You know, and just because he's famous doesn't mean he's a good martial artist, which he's not. And that was 1986, two years before he made his first movie. I saved the LA Times calendar section. So anybody wants to read it, he was disrespectful. That's why I gave him a little call. And I just told him flat out, I said, hey, you know, you said bad things about two friends of mine. One is dead. It was 86 and Bruce had died in 73 or he'd be over kicking your butt. But the other person is just too nice. He's, I didn't tell him, but he's never been in a street fight. Now he's a tough, tough dude. Let me tell you, he can go, but he just doesn't believe in violence. For me, I think Hitler's and ISIS and monsters like that, they should go meet the Lord. And I'm happy to arrange it. They're punks. Imagine the kind of human being that would cut somebody's head off and film it so that their loved ones can see their loved one die. Put them in a cage and burn them. They're monsters, okay? So Hussein, you know, all these clowns, ISIS, all those, they don't deserve to breathe our air. And they should be gone. A lot of people don't understand some of the, the Iraq war and the other things because they, they get misinformation by bad news. But the truth is, they were creating cesspools of maniac killers, okay? In fact, they had to go over there to wipe out Osama bin Laden. And a good friend, a good guy, this is a Commander Brian Losey, okay? Came up, he wanted a picture. He and his wife were both black belts. And uh, he was the commander of SEAL Team 6. He took out bin Laden, okay? Well, they had to risk themselves going across countries that weren't delighted to have them there. But right. good man. I love the SEALs. I love military. You know, I'm Army, but anybody that serves their country, they never right. I'm not for punks like these football players. They can't find a better way to protest and not stand for our flag. They're punks. I would never watch NFL ever again just because of those punks. So, you know. If you've got to disrespect your country that gave you the right to play a game and make millions, I invite you to go to any other country and see if somebody pay you millions to throw a little pigskin around. And you're, you're going to come and disrespect our flag? Boo! You're all punks. I'd invite you to come, any of you, come to my place and I'll educate you, okay? But you don't disrespect flag of our country that gave you all these rights and the millions of dollars. You don't disrespect other fellow martial artists unless they're disrespectful. And then, like Steven Seagal, you call them what they are, chicken shit fat punks. They couldn't <laughs> beat my grandmother. Before I let you go, what is Bob Wall doing right now? How are you, how are you staying busy? What projects do you got coming up? If you had an urge to kind of redo your book a little bit with current martial artists? Or what do you have going on right now? Well, you know, like Chuck and I, we built the largest chain of schools. And after a while, in the beginning, we, he and I had to teach all the classes. But we thought it was quite brilliant and turned out to be correct. In those days, when we became partners, nobody on earth was teaching women and kids. Nobody. Okay. Now, today, it's probably two thirds of the audience. But right. we decided to specialize in women and kids. And shocking, if you have lots of women, you'll have all the guys you want. So we never advertised for men. We just advertised for women and kids. And so I would teach the black belt class and Chuck would teach the kids class. And then the next school or the next round, I would teach the kids class. And we love teaching kids. 
And by teaching children, first of all, you can give them some moral value. Right. You can teach them not to be an egotist. Okay. You can teach them not to be disrespectful. And you can teach them not to be disrespectful of somebody, which we did. We said, look, Mr. Norris is half Indian. I'm all Irish. But some of my best friends from Howard Jackson was like my son. It was black. Well, why would you judge somebody by their color that they didn't choose? So we made sure we got through to them that if you dislike uh, a Chinaman or a black person or a Mexican or a Latin or whatever, or an Indian for that matter, then there's something wrong with you. You've been mistrained and it's not going to be in this school. Okay. And if you go home and hit your sister, we're going to kick your ass. Damn, we're going to enjoy that. it. Yep. So you, do, you don't hit your family. You mind your parents. So we get more than just teaching, we, more than just the physical. And, you know, back to your earlier comment about the schools, many, 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 many schools, every chain, 100%, from the Tracys to June Ree, all of them came from my manual. Alan Steen, Pat Burleson. And Pat Burleson's a dear friend. And he actually helped me create the manual. We exchange ideas, but I gave it to everyone. When Joe Lewis left after Chuck Bottom out, my school, he joined up within about a year with the Tracys. Called me one day and he said, hey, could I have that manual for the Tracys? Sure. I gave it to everybody. I didn't sell it. That would be disrespectful. I'm not going to make money off my fellow martial artists. All I want you to do is be of moral character. My mom told me, she said, you know, reputation is what people think you are. But character is what you really are. So just be of good character. So I married one woman. Now, I was a whore. I ran the Whiskey Go-Go for three years, 62 to 65. I had Jeez. the greatest sex life, better than anybody. But I'd get up in the morning. I said, how do I get her out of here? So then I realized <laughs> they do drugs. I've never done an aspirin. I give pain. I receive pain. I don't even take Novocain. I don't care what it is. I will take no drugs. No, Never done an aspirin. Okay? Also, haven't been sick with a cold or a flu or a headache in well over 60 years. I don't get sick. I can't get sick. Okay. And I know I'm going to heaven. You know why? Why is that? Well, because the devil's scared shitless of me. <laughs> I'll kick his ass. I'll wreak heaven on hell. So anyway, it's a joke, of course. But the reality is I have all of my life. Have I made mistakes? Yes. Have I done things I shouldn't have done? Yes. But... I, at the end of the day, I always try to be of great moral character. So when I married my wife 52 years ago, we started dating 56 years ago. That's it. So if a man can have sex two hours a day, seven days a week, he's a better man than I ever was. So that leaves 22 hours. You've got to sleep, eat, and actually talk yep. to the woman you're married to and actually respect her. 52 years we've been married. I have never, ever failed. When my wife goes out to the car, I go out and open the door. When we sit down for a meal, I pull the chair back. I treat her like the queen she is. You understand? I love that. Yep. So 52 years later, we're both still in love. Do we still disagree sometimes? Yes, that's just human. But no divorce, one marriage, two kids, fabulous. I got two fabulous daughters. One dated Ryan Seacrest for four and a half years and now wind up marrying a billionaire in New York. And the other one. Both acted, and I used to go, oh, please, that's the worst career in the world. Bad enough for a guy, much less a girl. I never wanted to be an actor. I, I only did the films for Chuck Norris and Bruce and Freddie Weintraub on my love. So I stunt-coordinated uh, Jim Kelly's first movie, um, Black Belt Jones. And we were both offered a three-picture starring role. I was offered uh, actually a little better deal than he got. 
But my wife and I discussed it, and I said, you know, I I've made over four million dollars just just playing backgammon. Okay, I'm a really good player. But I stopped going a few years ago because I don't like the smoking. I don't like the people. Uh, I don't like the whole attitude of it. I made a lot of money, but my thing is be of good character. And so I tried to do that. So I got two fabulous daughters. Now my youngest, my youngest now, uh, she built uh, five coffee houses and then caught her boyfriend cheating on her. So she dumped him and sold the coffee house, a lot of money. And uh, that's when she decided to act. She acted really quite talented and quite beautiful. One brunette, one blonde. And uh, I always tell them, lucky you, you look like your handsome father, not your fat, ugly mother. And wow. they, go, they roll yeah. their eyes for my <laughs> wife is a 10. Uh, she's gorgeous. She's 5'2", and, uh, and weighed 112 pounds when we got married. Today, she weighs, she's 5'2", 111. She's got a figure to die for. She's gorgeous inside and out. So why wouldn't you treat that woman like a queen? Why would right. you go fool around on her? It's called cheating. In my mind, if you cheat on your wife, what's wrong with saying, you know, we're not getting along. Let's get a divorce. But don't cheat. If you right. cheat on your wife, you'll cheat on anybody. Chuck Norris and I, partners forever, almost 60 years we've known each other, and never had a problem. Why? Because when we started, I was pretty much of a grappler street fighter. They weren't selling grappling street fighter. Now, I already had a black belt with Joe Lewis, so I could punch and kick, but nobody was as good as Chuck in those days. And so I just learned from him, became one of his black belts, one of my eight black belts is Joe Lewis and Chuck Norris, Gene LaBelle, you know, and the founder of Judo's son. And so I got an eighth don from, from the founder of Taekwondo, General Che. Um, and I, I get sent rank all the time. But, you know, people say, what's your rank? Black belt. Yeah, but what degree? Black belt. World professional champion. That says on the wall. How is, what's a higher rank than that? If there is, come on down. Show me. So all these 26-year-olds that are ninth degree or 27th degree, they're full of shit. Gina Bell always told right. me, wear the rank you can defend on the mat. That's the rank I wear. It's called black belt. Right. Well, well, I I Chuck, Chuck reported me ninth, and I have many ninths, and I don't believe in tenths, but I've probably got a half a dozen of them in file cabinets. I don't even display them because General Chase said, and I think correctly so, he never promoted anybody above ninth. He said, when you die, you're a tenth. You're gone. Go to Vegas, and all the 10-point cards are zero. So, and there has to be a limit. I've got members of World Black Belt that, uh, that are, I think, the highest rank is a 26th degree. Okay? So, isn't that a bunch of malarkey? You know, there's got to be a stopping point at some point. Okay? But at any rate, it's been a pleasure. If you have any other questions, I'll be happy to answer them. As you can see, I'm a little opinionated. So... <laughs> I want to uh, I want to thank you for this, Bob. Uh, again, growing up, watching your characters in Into the Dragon and various Chuck Norris movies, you've always been had a fascinating uh, just kind of persona about you. And hearing you talk about your military career, which I was very unfamiliar with, and your devotion to your family and wife, and you actually really love martial arts and you want to do the right thing. And uh, this was a great time. Martial arts because because taught properly you get respect you give respect okay now here's my certificate 
I was outstanding. Can you see that? Incredible. I was outstanding trainee of my division, not company. Okay. Got out, honorably discharged sergeant, uh, E5, wow. in, in 19, July of 1962. So everything I do, I try to be the best at it. But That's amazing. The important thing is support your military, support your country. Don't disrespect America. Disrespect somebody else, you know. And it's always these punks that have never served in the military. They're the ones with the mouth. They're the ones that want to kneel. They don't want to stand for the flag. I can't stand any of them. They're twerps. I'd love to just slap the shit out of every one of them. Disrespect <laughs> America, the greatest country on earth? Come on. So anyway, I've lived well, my life. I'm the most blessed man on earth. I have the greatest marriage. I've had the greatest career. You know, I live in a mansion that's paid for. I mean, I just Chuck and I, fabulous partners. Uh, I've had so many fabulous friends from Chuck Norris to Bruce Lee and Pat Burleson and Jim Harrison and, and so many others, just fabulous human beings. But it's respect. Give respect and get it. Give disrespect. You might find yourself on your back with your little feet twitching and your little eyeballs roll back. I love it. And uh, I don't ever want you to change. Keep being you. And I wish you all the success. And uh, thank you for this. This was awesome, Bob. I appreciate it. John, the, here's the point. You know, uh, I never worry. When anybody asks me for an interview or a podcast, I do it for anybody because that's the right thing to do. It was like always giving away my manual. Right. That's the right thing to do, to be honest, to be moral, but also to stand for what you stand for. If you don't stand for something, you'll stand for nothing. I love America. I've had the most blessed life in the world, thanks to America, thanks to my mother, thanks to my wife, thanks to my kids, thanks to Bruce Lee's and Chuck Norris's and Jim Harrison's and Pat Burleson's and on and on and on. There's so many fabulous martial artists that I've been blessed to know. So I always want to give back any way I can. If somebody's got an audience of three, I don't care. I'll do the interview for them. I'll do the podcast for them, just like you. And they can like it or not. I'm going to tell you what I think. No, I love that. And uh, again, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. I'm sorry it was so hard. You know, I'm, I'm only a blue button computer. I'm not exactly the master. I can send and receive emails. I can Google. But I mean, I literally was 30 minutes trying to figure out how to get this thing to work. No, it's it good. The hardest. I, uh, anyway. I started this last March for uh, obviously with COVID. And uh, I've been trying to navigate through all the technical and all this stuff. But. No, I'm glad we were able to make it work, and uh, I look forward to having everyone hear this interview. All right, so maybe you do me a favor and send me a copy of this interview. Oh, one hundred percent copies. One hundred percent. I always like to have copies of what I said. No, I love. Then it. I go back and say I didn't really say that. Shut right. up. <laughs> Would you call that guy? No. I, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> All good. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, John. Thank have you. a blessed day, and be you safe. Too. Be safe. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Do, did, 
Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.